You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. To, to be able to do this with you this morning. Uh, just as we get set to open God's word uh, together, I know Allison already prayed that our hearts would be open to what the Lord might say to us. So one of the practices that I've uh, just adopted in my own life as I open the scriptures, uh, even just in my own personal reading, is to pray uh, either the prayer uh, of the psalmist, Lord, uh, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law, or to, uh, to pray the prayer uh, of Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, or just to pray uh, what we're told constantly in the, or repeatedly in the book of Revelation, uh, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I just want to pray this morning as we open God's word together. Father, we do thank you for your word, how it instructs us, how it teaches us, how it shapes us and molds us. And we pray now as we open it together, as we uh, read it, as we look into it, that you would, in fact, uh, reveal things to us in it, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, that you would, uh, that we, we would be open to you speaking, for we are listening, and that our hearts would be uh, open to hear, our ears would be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And uh, I'm actually honored today to be able to bring your study of the book of 1 Corinthians to a close. Uh, I know that you've been at it for some time, and I looked back. I've come to Midtown now a few times and ha- had the opportunity to, uh, to preach here. I looked back, and I uh, preached a message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, all the way back in October of uh, 2022. I preached a message out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 last February, so basically a year ago. Ago. And now I get to kind of wrap up your series as we look at these concluding verses. And I looked on your website and, and found this is number 50 uh, in your series or message number 50 in your series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. So you've been at it for a while. Uh, you know the background of it. You know what the letter is about. And you know that the letter of 1 Corinthians has a lot to say to the church And what we read in these concluding verses is no exception. So with that said, I'm going to get right into it and read it for you. We're looking this morning at verses 5 to 24 of chapter 16. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So so let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you, with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, I, I think sometimes we come to uh, the end of a letter like this, the end of a, a book like this in our Bible reading, and we think of it as sort of filler material. I mean, we think, uh, you know, Paul talks here about his travel plans. Uh, he mentions uh, a number of individuals by name. He gives an exhortation or two, but it seems maybe a bit dis disconnected from us in our day. I mean, the travel plans have already taken place. Many of the people that are mentioned by name here are unfamiliar to us. So what are we supposed to do with this information? Well, I want to highlight uh, three encouragements or three exhortations for you. Uh, the first thing that you ought to do is you ought to hold your plans loosely to the glory of God. Now, making plans is certainly not a bad thing. We all ought to engage in both short-term and long-term planning, but we ought to hold on to our plans loosely. We ought to hold on to them with kind of an open hand. And part of the reason for that is because there are so many variables, so many things that happen to us that might change our plans. And I think if the last few years taught us anything, they taught us that plans often have to change. So back in uh, 2020, at the end of 2020, Ilona and I, my wife and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary and we planned to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary uh, on a tropical island somewhere. We ended up celebrating on Vancouver Island, um, which is not quite the same thing. But you know what was happening in 2020, all of the chaos around COVID stuff, and our plan had to change. Now, these verses actually give us a glimpse of the Apostle Paul making plans for future ministry endeavors. His plans, as he outlines them, were to return to Corinth at some point, to spend a significant amount of time amongst the Corinthians, strengthening the church there. But first... He planned to spend more time in the city of Ephesus, strengthening the church that was there. And you can see that he engaged in strategic planning. He had a plan for at least the next year of ministry. But you can also see that, his, that all of his plans were somewhat tentatively, that he held on to them loosely. So in verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And then in verse six, he adds, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. There's a, there's a maybe to his plans. This might happen. 
And then in verse seven, he says, for I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And those last words, if the Lord permits, reminds us, remind us of what James tells us elsewhere in the New Testament when he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And that phrase, if the Lord wills, is not just sort of a thing we, we tack on to sound spiritual. It's actually how we make our plans. We make our plans, but we hold on to them loosely. We understand that all of those plans are subject to the will of God. So it's good to plan. It's not good to be presumptuous. But I think we can actually dig a little bit deeper into this idea that we ought to hold on to our plans loosely to the glory of God. And I want to say two things it means to hold our plans loosely to the glory of God. The first one is that we need to understand the difference between a plan and a purpose. I think many of us are familiar with the evangelistic tract that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that is true, but I think sometimes when we hear that, we kind of get the wrong idea about it. We hear God has a wonderful plan for our lives and we think, well, of course he does. His plan for me is to have a great marriage and a fulfilling career and wonderful, well-behaved children and a house with a yard and a vacation property on the lake, right? I mean, that would be a wonderful plan for my life. I think it might be better to say that God loves you and has a wonderful purpose for your life. See, the plan might not go as you expect, but that does not have to stop you from fulfilling your purpose. And Paul understood the difference between a plan and a purpose. He had very strategic plans for ministry. He really wanted to get back to Corinth, but he knew that the priority at the moment was to strengthen the church in Ephesus. And so his plans, those things that he might like to do were subject to his purpose, those things that he knew he had to do. Now, some experts recommend developing kind of like a five-year plan and then reviewing that plan regularly. It's not bad advice, but whenever we do that, whenever we review our plans, we ought to begin a review of our plans with our purpose. What is our purpose? And so I mentioned already that, you know, I had these plans or my wife and I had these plans to how we were going to celebrate our 25th anniversary on a tropical island. The plan changed, but the purpose didn't right? The, the, the purpose was to celebrate this significant milestone in our life. And we could do that in one location as well as in another, or at least almost as well. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, my wife and I watch it, you know, almost every Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life. If you know the movie, it's an old movie, tells the story of George Bailey. His life is constantly interrupted, uh, he has these great dreams. He has dreams of traveling the world and making it big, making a fortune. 
But those dreams are interrupted again and again. First, his dream is interrupted by having to wait, and kind of tend to the family business while his brother graduates from college. Then he has to put his plans on hold because his father dies and he has to take over the family business while his brother serves in the military. His own honeymoon is interrupted because of a run on the bank. His wife, his four kids, his dilapidated house, all of those things pro provide a steady stream of interruptions to his imagined life, to his wonderful plan. But in the end, George Bailey learns that all of those interruptions were actually God's way of saving his life and making it wonderful. And what the movie is really about is the difference between having plans and having a purpose. Second thing to note about holding our plans loosely is that we need to understand that fulfilling our purpose will include opportunities and opposition. I find verses eight and nine to be fascinating verses. Here's what Paul says. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now, the first half of verse nine makes complete sense. A wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. Of course, you're going to stay in Ephesus for that. But then the second half of verse nine, he says, and there are many adversaries. Well, that's kind of puzzling. You're going to stay in Ephesus because there's this wide door, but you're also going to stay because there are many adversaries. And when you read the account of Paul's time in the city of Ephesus, what you find is that it was filled with both opportunities and opposition. So Acts 19 records what happened during Paul's time in Ephesus. Verse 10 of that chapter, we read this. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I mean, what a great opportunity. Those two years that Paul ministered there, this door was so wide open that all the residents heard the good news of the gospel. A wide door for effective ministry was open. That was the opportunity. But if you keep reading Acts chapter 19, you'll read this. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people or turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. So while there were many in Ephesus who heard the word of God preached and responded to it, there were also many in Ephesus who opposed Paul's preaching and his message because it would call, it would, it would call their very existence, the existence of a God like Artemis into question. It would disrupt their trade. It would affect their bottom line and they didn't want anything interfering with that. There were many adversaries. 
And what I really want to say here is that the situation in Ephesus was not actually that different from the situation that we can encounter today in any city. Right? Sometimes we think, well, you know, there are certain cities or certain places that are more open to the gospel, and there are other places that are more closed to the gospel. That may be true to a certain degree. But for the most part, I would just say that we will encounter both opportunities and opposition anytime we go about preaching the gospel. That's the nature of this work. It's met with both of those things. And what we need to remember, right? So we like opportunities. We're not so crazy about opposition. But what we need to remember is that we shouldn't flee at the first sight of opposition or hostility, right? Paul said the reason he's staying in Ephesus is because of the open door and because there are many adversaries. This actually takes us to the second observation from this passage. So the first one is hold your plans loosely to the glory of God. The second one is hold the faith tightly to the glory of God. So I'm going to jump to verse 13 for this point. We're going to circle back and look at verses 10 to 12 and then 14 to 24 in the last point. But as you've been reading the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know that they experienced opposition, uh, their own opposition, right? Some of it came from outside the church and some of it was coming from inside the church. Verse 13 says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So Paul gives these four kind of staccato statements or exhortations here. And I think it's worth just touching on each one of them. Firstly, he says, be watchful. Now, we understand what those words mean in a general sense. But what does Paul mean here when he says to the church at Corinth, be watchful? What are we to be watchful about? Well, these are Paul's concluding exhortations to the church in Corinth or to the Corinthians. He's not going to see them for a while. So it's interesting to compare them with his concluding remarks or his farewell remarks to the Christians in the city of Ephesus when he departed. And, and Acts chapter 20 records that for us. Here's what it says there. Paul said this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Those words, be alert, it's the exact same verb as we find in 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful, be on the ready, keep alert. And what we need to be watchful about or what we need to stay alert about is the fact that there are many who find their way into the church and teach what is twisted or false. And this is not less of a problem today than it was in Paul's day. And I think sometimes we just kind of get lulled into a sense of complacency. We let our guard down. We don't pay attention to what is being taught. We need to be watchful. We need to stay alert. Well, then Paul says, stand firm in the faith. 
Now it's fairly subtle, so you may not have noticed it, but I made the first point, hold your plans loosely to the glory of God. And this second point, hold the faith tightly to the glory of God. So you ought to hold on to your faith, right? But sometimes when we talk about, you know, your faith and, and my faith, we might think, well, you know, my faith is a little bit different than your faith and I'm holding on to that. But when Paul says, stand firm in the faith, he is referring to something very specific. Uh, Jude speaks the same way when he says this. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude refers to the faith as something delivered or taught. Now, Christianity cannot be reduced to a set of doctrines that you just give mental assent to, but there is a set of doctrines that we hold to, that comprise the faith. You saw this in chapter 15. I know you went through it a while ago, but that in chapter 15, where it highlights that we cling, we hold to, we hold fast to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. These things, Paul tells us, are of first importance. And we are to stand firm in the faith. We're not to move from those things. So be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Paul's third exhortation is act like men. Now that one might, that one might seem a little bit odd to you. And if so, it's only because of contemporary cultural definitions. Uh, so some other modern translations translate those words as be courageous. So that's what you find in the NIV, for example. And I understand how they got there. I think courage is part of what Paul is calling for here. But that doesn't really capture the full extent of what Paul is saying when he says, act like men. Now, there was a day that you could say, act like men, and everyone would know what you're talking about. Now, I know there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, but I think much of what gets painted with that label is really just masculinity. And there are some segments of contemporary society that see any discussion of masculinity and femininity as somehow demeaning they're not. From a biblical perspective, there is an expectation of what it means to act like men. There's an expectation that men will provide, that men will protect, that men will be courageous. But even that, just this idea that, that we're to act like men in those ways doesn't even capture the full picture of what this means. Because there's another contrast to note with this idea of act like men. Uh, Anthony Thistleton is probably the preeminent scholar uh, on the book of 1 Corinthians. And here's what he had to say about the translation and meaning of this phrase, act like men. He said, but here the gender issue threatens to obscure the force of be a man. Anair has two semantic oppositions, not one. It does not, it does not simply pose a contrast with supposedly feminine qualities. It also stands in contrast with childish ways, as strikingly in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, if you remember that verse, Paul says there, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So the calling here that Paul gives us when he says act like men is to both maturity and courage. And those things are in short supply today. I remember years ago now talking with uh, Gary Thomas. He started out as an author. He's now a pastor. And he was a, a bit of a mentor of mine for a stretch of time when he lived in Bellingham. And he told me that in the early days of trying to establish himself as an author and as, as a speaker, uh, he had to do lots of traveling, lots of itinerant teaching and, and speaking. And he would do marriage conferences, parenting conferences, all of those sorts of things. So he was away most weekends. And they had young kids at home. Uh, it was a way to make a living, but it was also uh, tough and draining. And he, he said that he was in an airport on one of those weekends and he was, you know, kind of feeling sorry for himself, complaining to God about how difficult his life was. And in the midst of all that, he felt like the Lord said to him, Gary, you're behaving like a boy who needs to be rescued instead of like a man who has responsibilities. And I've asked myself that question many times following that conversation. Am I behaving like a boy who needs to be rescued or like a man who has responsibilities? Now, it's not to say that life isn't challenging at times or that there's not a, a place for acknowledging that. But sometimes we do just kind of have to rub some dirt on it and get back in the game. We have to act like men. We have to show courage. We have to be mature. We have to understand our responsibilities. The final exhortation in this verse is be strong. A good paraphrase of that might be become strong or be strengthened. Paul's not telling us here that we ought to put on a tough guy act, but we ought to do those things that will increase our strength in the faith. So, so how do you become strong? If that's the exhortation, how do we go about doing that? And about seven or eight years ago now, I experienced a, a couple of injuries uh, in sort of quick succession. And those injuries revealed to me uh, just the weakness of my physical body. Like some of them could have been prevented. I was uh, at the time, you know, gotten really busy with life. Also had gotten kind of lazy wasn't really looking after myself proper, properly. And that's part of the reason I sustained those injuries. And, and those things though, they kind of set me on a bit of a course correction that if I was just to function in life, if I just want to have some functional physical strength, I need to do something about that. And I just determined at that point, you know, I'm just going to make that part of my life. And I'm uh, committed myself in the gym four or five days a week. Now I'm not immune to injury, but my body is stronger in my 50s than it was in my 40s. You don't become stronger physically without some kind of training and you don't become strong in the faith without some kind of training. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jude tells us this. He says, but you beloved, building yourselves up 
in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, building yourselves up. So my question for you, in light of these exhortations, is what are you doing to build yourself up? What are you doing to strengthen yourself in the faith? The third exhortation, and the first one is hold your plans loosely to the glory of God. The second one is hold the faith tightly to the glory of God. The third exhortation we find here is love each other deeply to the glory of God. You know, it's good to read verses 13 and 14 together. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. That's a, it's a nice sounding sentiment, but what does this actually look like in the context of our relationships? How do we live that out in the church? Well, we actually get some clues as to what this looks like in these verses. And I noticed three things in particular that we ought to take to heart if we're to love each other deeply for the glory of God. The first one is that we ought to love those you might be tempted to look down on or disagree with. So let me take you back now to verses 10 to 12. Look firstly at verses 10 and 11, what Paul says about Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I, expect, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So starting with Timothy. I, I don't know what it was about Timothy. He's certainly a prominent person in the New Testament. He was near and dear to Paul's heart. But his reception by others seems to have been somewhat tentative. Here Paul says, let no one despise him. That's an interesting thing to have to say, right? Like if Norm had sent you a message before I came and said, hey, Lee's preaching today, let no one despise him. To have to say that, you'd go, well, what is it about Lee that I might naturally despise? And maybe you do. Um, well, why would anyone be tempted to look down on or despise Timothy? Well, Acts chapter 16 tells us that Timothy, Timothy was the product of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. And that chapter gives us this additional information. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul's reasoning there seems to have been, look, he's gonna, you're gonna find a more favorable reception among the Jews if you're circumcised. Now the Corinthian church was made up of largely Gentile converts and maybe the inverse would have been true. I mean, maybe they saw him as a bit of a sellout. And maybe that's why Paul says, let no one despise him. Uh, we know that Timothy ended up pastoring the church in the city of Ephesus. And it's interesting to note what Paul said about Timothy in that context. He said, let, to Timothy, he said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
So maybe the temptation was to look down on Timothy or to despise him because he was young. Maybe that's why Paul had to say, let no one despise him. Well, I think there is a temptation to do that sometimes. I mean, sometimes we are tempted to look down on a person because of their youth, because they are young. I mean, what life experience do they have? What could they possibly teach me? Or maybe we're tempted to look down on a person because they're older, right? I mean, they're not, you know, up on the times and, and all of that. And maybe we despise them or look down on them for that reason. But regardless of the reason, what's instructive for us to know is how we're supposed to respond to those we might be tempted to look down on. Paul told the Corinthians what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to put him at ease. They were to recognize the ministry that he was doing. They were to help him on his way. In short, they were supposed to treat Timothy the same way they would treat Paul if he were the one coming to them. Now, I don't know exactly what this means for you. It, it might be that there are those you're tempted to look down on because of their background, maybe because of their education level. Maybe it is because of their age, young or old. Well, these are the people you're called to love. What Paul says about Apollos is, is equally instructive. In verse 12, he says this, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, the Corinthians loved Apollos. He was an eloquent speaker. He was in demand. And based on what we read earlier in this letter, he had his own fan club in Corinth. You will remember that there were factions in, in the church in Corinth. Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Like, he's my guy. Now here, verse 12, it says, now concerning Apollos. That probably means the Corinthians had written to Paul asking him to send Apollos back to them. That's who they wanted. And the thing that ought to be instructive for us is Paul's attitude toward Apollos. He could have resented Apollos. He could have thought, hey, look, I'm the big deal around here. But notice how he refers to Apollos now concerning our brother, Apollos. And then notice how Paul and Apollos actually had different ideas about what was best for Apollos in ministry, what his priorities should have been. They disagreed on that. Paul says he urged him strongly to go to Corinth but Apollos had other things he thought were more pressing or more important at the moment. And Paul doesn't disparage Apollos because he had different priorities. He doesn't say, look, I tried to tell him to come to see you, but you know, he is so thick-headed and set in his own way, he's not going to do it. I think it just might be good for us to remember that we will have disagreements with people in the church. We might disagree about matters like this. Ministry priorities, philosophy of ministry. We might disagree over lots of other things. I mean, the appropriate response to all the COVID stuff produced lots of opportunities for disagreement. I always tell couples preparing for marriage that what matters is not whether or not you have disagreements. What matters is how you handle those disagreements. And that's true for the church. Can you disagree with someone and still love them? And the answer ought to be yes. Second thing it means to love one another deeply to the glory of God. 
is that we are to love those who serve alongside of you, over you, and under you. Now, I'm trying to squeeze a lot into this, um, but I want to say you see examples of all three in these verses. So verses 15 to 18 say this. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Paul refers to those from the household of Stephanus as his fellow workers and co-laborers. This is how we ought to see one another. I know it's it been a little while, but you explored not that long ago, uh, chapters 12 to 14 in, in 1 Corinthians. And those chapters actually give us an extent, extensive understanding of what it means to say that the church is the body of Christ, right? One body with many parts or many members that don't all have the same function. It, it's no accident that right in the middle of that section, in chapter 13, there's an extended discussion on love. We're called to love one another. We're called to love those who serve alongside of us. And I would just say, look around the room right now. T take a look at the people sitting next to you or across the aisle from you or across the room from you. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are your fellow workers. These are your co-laborers. And you ought to love them to the glory of God. The over you part, love those who are over you, comes from Paul saying, be subject to such as these. In verse 16. Now I know making ourselves subject to anyone, including leaders in the church, is not a popular idea today. It might not be popular, but it's part of what we're, it means to love one another. The, the writer of Hebrews gives these instructions. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you, right? Love those who serve alongside you. Love those who are over you. What about the under you part? Well, I take this from the way Paul interacts with the Corinthians here. I mean, he, he clearly loves these people. He says as much in the very last verse of the letter. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And I think Paul is a great example of a ministry leader and how they ought to relate to the people who are under them. They ought to do so in love. I think it's common sometimes to hear leaders express frustration with those that they minister to. And I would just say it's hard to minister effectively to people if you think they're all a bunch of knuckleheads. I, I mean, it is. If, if you think, you know what, man, spending this time in kids ministry and, and trying to teach these kids is, is kind of a waste of my time. Or, you know, the youth, they just, they don't have it together and I'm serving there. And like, what am I doing here? People in my community group, like, I, I don't know if they're getting it. Look, in any ministry context, you ought to love the people you minister to. 
Your ministry should flow from that. I've often been encouraged with the example of Jesus when he was in the middle of a discussion with a rich young ruler who just couldn't quite grasp that following Jesus was more important than acquiring and possessing wealth. And Mark records it like this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's what we ought to do with those we minister to. Final thing about loving one another deeply is that we are to love one another with genuine personal affection. Listen again to verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscus, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, these greetings are not sort of throwaway lines. They're not filler content. There was a genuine love for one another that existed in the first century church. They didn't even just send greetings. They sent hearty greetings. Paul's specific instructions for the Christians in Corinth was to greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's not the only time Paul gives that instruction. At the end of of the book of Romans, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. At the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I've been in churches where that's kind of the culture that, and they practice that. Um, I don't know that I would be comfortable with it here, but I kind of liked it actually to, to, to watch that take place. There's something about the importance of greeting one another with warmth, welcoming one another warmly. I, I know we, you know, we used to kind of make fun of sort of the middle of the, the church gathering or service. You know, they do a handshake time and it's, oh, it's so shallow and, and, and all of that. I would say in a day when people are starved for any kind of physical touch, I think it's a good thing to do. I mean, it's better than standing and sitting next to someone for an hour and 15 minutes and not introducing yourself. The point, of course, is not a handshake time or no handshake time, but that there ought to be genuine expressions of personal affection among Christians as they gather and as they meet outside of formal gatherings. Now, I I was in the lobby in between your gatherings. I saw lots of that taking place. I know there's a great warmth here. I just think we all ought to work at expanding our circles, offering each other the right hand of fellowship, so to speak. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's what we do as a church. We welcome one another in the same way that Christ has welcomed us and we do it to the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these instructions. We thank you for your love for us that welcomed us into your family and then made us a family together. And we pray. I pray for Midtown Church. I pray that they would be your people, loving one another deeply, that that would um, have an impact on others who come in and see it and are aware of what's taking place here. We thank you for your clear call that we ought to stand firm in the faith, hold on to it tightly with everything we have, and that we ought to hold our plans loosely before you and submit them all to you. And we pray we would do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, 
please go to midtownchurch.com.